But I thought it was amazing that like they had these different candy bars there. <laughs> I was like, what? Cadbury Flake? What's that? And, and, and you stick it in ice cream? You know, have you, you see that where they yeah, stick the little yeah. chocolate stick in the soft ice cream? And that was so amazing to me and just blew my mind that they were driving on the opposite side of the street. Um, and just, I think, from there, I was, I was hooked. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 355. Despite its name, Brazil is only the world's second largest exporter of Brazil nuts. Can you guess what country is number one? Stick around to the end of the show, and I'll let you know. You do not have to be the former New York Times frugal traveler like today's guest in order to understand that one of the best ways to save money when you're traveling is to only travel with a carry-on backpack. You're going to save yourself all the headaches and hassle that comes with lugging around a lot of bags. You're also going to save yourself a lot of money because you're not paying those pesky checked bag fees. So if you are looking for the best travel carry-on backpack out there, the one that I use to go all over the world, check it out, tortugabackpacks.com. Make sure you use that promo code EPOP, that's E-P-O-P, all capital letters, and that'll get you 10% off anything you order. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who is known in some circles as a Latino food expert who can claim he's written for The New Yorker, but can't claim that his work has appeared in The New Yorker, and whose about page is hands down the funniest one I've ever read. And Seth, literally, I hate the term LOL because no one ever laughs out loud (laughs) when they write it. But your about page had me laughing out loud. And he's got a new book out, guys. Seth Kugel, former frugal traveler, columnist for the New York Times, and author of Rediscovering Travel, A Guide for the Globally Curious. Seth, thanks for making me laugh this morning, and thanks for joining me today. Travis, thanks for thanks for having me. I have one more story uh, about a, something I wrote that never made it in. Uh, I, I, way back at the beginning of my career, I took a class. And we had to write a humiliating essay. And I wrote a very humiliating essay about a, a, a date I had with my dream woman after going after her for like a, a, a year. Uh, and it was all about how in the middle of the date, I got this incredible flatulence. Basically, I just had to, to fart so badly. And we were in her house and I, I just it, it dominated everything. Uh, and I ended up writing a story about it for Playboy and I wrote it and I sold it to Playboy. And then I was so nervous about this piece coming out cause she was going to know it was about her and, and, uh, they killed it. They spiked it. They didn't print it. So just like my piece for the, I sold to, I've written for the New Yorker and they haven't published it. I've written for Playboy really embarrassingly and they haven't published it. So, uh, I'm a, I'm a really, really experienced non-published published author there you go perfect and uh if you guys are listening for or looking for an awesome thing to read your about page totally funny i i 
that l- intro is a little longer than normal, but I only got through like a quarter of your about page here, so there's a ton more to dive into. Oh, One geez. of the things I loved about that, though, you say the most common question you get is, how do you become the f- frugal traveler, or how did you become it, and followed closely by how can that person asking a question become the frugal traveler? And you say those are tough, so I'm going to give you this softball question at the beginning. You much prefer your third most common question, room for milk. I don't know what room for milk means. I don't. I'm not good at pop culture, man. So explain what is this? What is room for milk? <laughs> yeah, you do. You, do you make your own coffee? Do you not go to cafes or anything? Is this something different in I, New York? I mean, I don't drink coffee, so I guess that's why. Right, that's why. It's just what they ask you if you go to a, a cafe and you ask for a regular coffee, uh, as opposed to like a latte or something. And do they fill it all the way up, or do they leave room for milk? That's that's the question. There you go. Easy, uh, easiest question you'll get the whole time right there. Um, now, and I learned something new. If I ever drink coffee now, I'll know. I'll have to tell them room for milk because I certainly won't drink black coffee. If, no, if you, I don't you like don't even have to coffee. tell them. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna ask you. Okay. Yeah, I don't drink black coffee. I don't drink black coffee either. I, uh, it's uh, it's too much for me. And milk is so good. Uh, it's the greatest thing in my life ever that I'm not lactose intolerant. It's so, be so, that would be so bad for I, me. Yeah, because I love ice cream. I, I mean, I'll drink oh. milk, but give me ice cream over milk. So I'm with you, man. Cheers to not being lactose intolerant. And like I said, we've got, we, we're going to talk, we're not just going to talk about milk. We got so much to cover. But first, I want to get to the thing that gets to the heart of everything that you do. And that's this love of travel. And let's get to the heart of that, where that comes from. Was it something for you, like ingrained in you as a kid? Or was this, this moment that was like, aha, uh-huh, yep, travel, that's, that's, it's going to be my life now? Well, uh, I mean, I don't know how I started doing this, but yeah, it was totally ingrained me as a kid. As a kid, I had this, the globe, you know, the globe, you spin, it's on a little at home that my parents had gotten. And I would just sit there and spin it and look at it and just kind of just literally wonder like, what's that place like? What's that place like? What's that place like? And in a way, I'm glad this was all before Google satellite and and all that, because on Google maps, you can actually go look. You can like, what's there? Well, I guess I'll just go into the street view and I'll just walk down the street, which is awesome. It is awesome. Uh, but it, I think the uh, sort of wonder the, that I had looking at this globe, like, what are all these places like? What are all these? And it was a globe that had kind of the elevations uh, on it. So you could sort of Perfect. touch it and feel the mountains. And I just wanted to know everything. And I, I would open the encyclopedia. At one point in my childhood, we got an actual like encyclopedia. Uh, with like, you know, volumes and stuff like that on the shelf. And I would just open it. And of course, I, I, I wanted to read the whole encyclopedia. I didn't even come close to you. That's not, I'm just too impatient for that. But yeah, I would like look up. I was like, what are the main agricultural products of Guinea-Bissau? Like what, what, what is sorghum? You know, I want to see a sorghum field. And, and, uh, and then luckily my parents, um, are, were travelers uh, before I was born, and I know you have a little a little kid now. Uh, they took about ten years off between when I was born and when I was ten, and then by the time I was ten, I knew where every country in the world was. Uh, I knew all the capitals. I, it's so embarrassing. I uh, in second grade, I proposed a special project to my second grade teacher to paint in watercolors every flag of the world, and I remember sitting in the hallway and doing it. I think he just like, Seth, just go. You're doing okay in math. 
just go sit outside and paint all the flags. And uh, it's, it's really kind of embarrassing. On the other hand, I know all of the flags of the world except for any place that became a country like after 1990, you know, right. or so after 1985 or something like that. So you're missing so, no, the Yugoslavian countries. You're missing South Sudan. Right. But I mean, if, if you've got like 180 out of 196, you could fill in the gaps now, man. I think maybe you sit down for a day or two, do some more watercolor. Well, if, if anyone wants a real big challenge, try to paint the Saudi Arabian flag in watercolor because it's got all this Arabic lettering on it in white. <laughs> So you have to paint the reverse. You have to paint the green around it, or or, or I don't I don't know, man. It's uh, but anyway, that's what happened. And then my parents took me to a very exotic place uh, when I was ten, which was London. Which now, like I live in New York now, to me, like London is the place most like New York of anywhere I know. A super diverse place. Everybody speaks English. Our sort of cultural ancestors are the same people because like it or not, we're still a former British colony and a lot of that uh, I can we can sort of feel it, especially in the East Coast. But uh, but I thought it was amazing that like they had these different candy bars there. <laughs> I was like, what? Cadbury Flake? What's that? And, and, and you stick it in ice cream? You know, have you, you see that where they yeah, stick the little yeah. chocolate stick in the soft ice cream? And that was so amazing to me and just blew my mind that they were driving on the opposite side of the street. Um, and just I think from there, I was I was hooked. My parents, you know, I, I often say that like uh, uh, the, my book is for people who's, who's in, a, in a way it's for people whose parents didn't teach them how to travel. Because if you learn from your parents and they were great travelers, it's like anything. It's like speaking a language from when you're a kid or learning uh, how to music from when you're a kid. If you if you get it from your parents, um, then it's it's a lot easier. And I really learned it from them. And they were the kinds of people that traveled much the way I like to travel now, just uh, being as uh, sort of spontaneous as possible, uh, changing plans whenever something came up, um, talking to everyone. Of course, that's embarrassing when your parents do it, but it's uh, it's a good skill to learn. So. Yeah, you talk about the book, and, and I've currently got it right here next to me, and you have yours right there. So it's pretty cool that, that you've got it out here in hardback. And it's different from a typical travel log because you, you kind of just touched on this. You've, you've woven a bit of a mission into it or, or like a, a bit of learning. In your words, what are you trying to show people? Because you're not saying, hey, I went here and here's what I saw. Hey, I went here and here's what I saw. There, right. There's stuff in that, and it's funny, and the stories are great. But it is it is there's a broader perspective here. Well, I think the idea is I'm not here to tell you to travel like I travel, but I'm, I'm the book is to make you think more about travel and to show you how I started thinking about travel and how I sort of began to realize that some of the things we're pushed to do when we travel are not necessarily the things we, we want to be doing. Uh, my goal for the book is to have people read and say, oh, yeah, um, uh, now I really have thought about why I travel, why I do it. And I'm not going to let, you know, uh, the Internet or a travel company or whatever push me to do something that's not right along the lines of what I want to do. I, I, I do say in the book that I'm not that happy with sort of some of the directions the travel industry has gone recently. But there's also a lot of great, great, great things the travel industry has given us in the last few decades that never existed before. I'm trying to have help people to navigate uh, what the great parts of modern travel are and what the things of the modern travel world are that we could sort of, we could sort of do without. And, 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 you know, it's not going to be a surprise to anyone that I don't think you should read a hundred reviews on TripAdvisor before you walk inside a restaurant, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Give us, give us some of those, like give us some of those, Hey, here's some of the things I think are, are hurting modern travel, 
or at least in, you know, in excess, done in excess is hurting modern travel. And then what are some of the things that you see on the flip side? Hey, these are the really great things about modern travel com- compared to someone who was setting out on their own 40 years ago or 30 years ago. Well, I think the answer to both of those questions is TripAdvisor. Uh, I, I talk a lot about TripAdvisor, but I'm fascinated by it. And I do believe, for example, on the negative side, that people do read too many reviews and they read them sort of randomly. And so to me, if you're standing outside a restaurant, there's three restaurants in front of you and you look up on your phone and read 20 reviews of each of them and then go into the one that sounds the best and then order just what the other people who wrote about it ordered and loved, then you're going to have a worse time than if you just randomly chose one of the three restaurants, walked in, looked around what the people were eating at at the different tables, do what I do, which is ridiculous, which is I sometimes try to get them to let me try whatever they're they're having. You mean the pers- uh, with- the people sitting at the other oh, tables? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you go up to them and oh. you're like, that looks good. Can I get a bite before I order? Well, sort of. I mean, I, you know, I hate to say this. I do have a little bit of a technique that I've evolved. And it doesn't work in every country. This And it certainly doesn't work in really expensive restaurants because nobody wants to be interrupted. But, uh, you know, for example, I went to a pizza place in, in, in Naples and, uh, you know, this, I just sat down and I'm alone, right? So, uh, well, it's even worse if I'm like with, like with a friend or a girlfriend or something like that. Then then they get really embarrassed. But I start talking. I'm like, hey, guys, can I just ask you, how's the how's the appetizer uh, tray you got there? The little free, mixed fried, you know, little fried delicious stuff. And they're like, oh, where are you from? Why are you alone? Whatever, whatever, whatever. And then like, why don't you just have the rest of it? Just take it. Uh, that sort of thing seems to happen weirdly often. Um, weirdly, so, but but also planned. <laughs> yes, it's, well, it's totally it is totally planned. I mean, uh, I have to admit, I do try to get invited to people's houses, and I try to make it look like I'm not trying to get invited to people's houses, and then I do. Um, so, I guess that's one thing. Um, another thing is, I really do believe in in. Uh, paper maps over Google Maps. Not entirely. Again, not entirely. Certainly, if you're on in a strange place on taking a highway somewhere, you want your Google Maps GPS to tell you when to get off the highway. You're going to miss it. But I'm talking about like walking around a city. Um, I had this amazing experience uh, uh, about five years ago in Chile where uh, Google Maps was not working for me. Like it just was sending me in the wrong direction. It didn't know where anything was. It turned out I realized at the time that they had just kind of started Google Maps in in Santiago. And I bought a paper map, like a gorgeous paper map. Uh, it cost like 20 bucks and I was frugal travel. I, I didn't report it really to my, you know, to the people I was writing for. Uh, and I looked at the map and I saw where I was and I saw where I was, I ch- checked out where I was staying. I was, I was doing a couch surfing uh, uh, spot there. I saw where it was going. And then an amazing thing happened in like half an hour of walking around. I realized where everything was. I was totally oriented like, oh, that's the mountains are there, which means my house, the place I'm staying is behind me, which means the the capital, the, the political, you know, the monuments are over there to the right. And, uh, and I just was like, whoa, I know this city better in half an hour than I, I got to know it in the first 24 hours because I was looking at a big map in front of me. And that's proven like by neurologists. That, that people who look at just the amount of the map that's on their phone don't really get to know where anything is, whereas if you look at a regular map. So that said, uh, there's some things I love about TripAdvisor. So TripAdvisor has made us, in a way, made, us, uh, made it better for us to travel to places where it was impossible to get information about before. You, 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 you might say, oh, I want to go to Tajikistan. <laughs> I don't know. Or, 
or, or uh, some part of India that's really uh, not in the top 50 cities to go to in India. And you can guarantee that there's going to be information about it online. It's not just TripAdvisor, of course. It's all kinds of stuff. And um, and you can read up about it. The other thing I love to do is in the middle of I – this, I did this in New York City just the other day. Um, I live in New York City. I've lived here for like 20 years. You go into TripAdvisor things to do. And if you go to like page 70 of the things to do, like number, you know, 422, it's there's some crazy stuff in there that I've never heard of. You know, uh, so that's something that's great about just this documentation of everything. It's so easy to get ideas. It's so easy to be inspired. Oh, what does this place look like? I look it up on Instagram. They'll tell you what it looks like. Now, I don't want you posting Instagram stories every four seconds when you're there. I think that's terrible. And the problem is, I think it's terrible, but I do it. I'm, I'm the most hypocritical traveler you've ever met. Uh, but as a research tool, it's it's really fantastic. It, Instagram, on the other hand, also has ruined some places, right? We've all read about these places, some gorgeous view, and then it just gets stampeded, and, and there's not enough park rangers, or there's not enough you know people watching over it, or the neighbors hate it, or whatever happens. Or uh, so, boy, it's it's really a, it's just a sort of a, a huge a huge mix. Uh, I also think that people um, are less are uh, willing to take risks these days than they used to, and I think sometimes we mistake um, sort of social risks with physical risks, and people are they sort of make an excuse to say, "Well, I'm not going to go there because it might be dangerous," but really they're kind of just scared to go to a place that they don't have any information about. And I, and I think that people were much were were more daring in many ways, maybe stupider. Uh, I have a neighbor. Who's uh, who's retired? Um, and I, I, when I was writing this book, I, I talked to him and I sort of told him what the book was about. And you know, he's a retired college professor. When he was a kid, it must have been in, in the '60s or something. And uh, he was traveling around the world. And he just said, "You know what? We just like went to the port, and there was a boat coming in, and the boat was a cargo boat going to some other city, and we just like got on. We, we, we there was we were out not in touch with anybody. We had no idea. We just got on and went. And I know, of course, some people still do that." But those are the cool travelers, right? That's not the normal thing to do. And those were really normal things to do. And I think people are just overly uh, a little bit scared. And of course, this is just the thing about the Americans, and I'm sure you have many non-Americans that listen to you, but we also have so few vacation days these days. Um, and it's one thing if you're like you or like me, actually, we're, we sort of make our own schedule. But for people who actually have to make a legitimate living, and eventually most people do, uh, I, I've escaped – so far. <laughs> so far, but, um, so good. Right. But so people will often tell me when I'm giving all this thing about like, oh, just go off on your own, do what, you know, um, take some chances. They'll be like, no, no, but I have a two weeks vacation this year and that's it. I have to have everything perfect. Everything has to be perfect. And like, what is that? Who has ever been on the perfect trip? Right. Yeah. It, I, it's tough. I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean. Right. I know exactly what you mean. And I also, as you mentioned, really, really struggle with it. Right. I know when I get out there and I just go, I have amazing, authentic adventures. I know from experience. I've done it probably a hundred times. Where I've been like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to go. And then you have these amazing days. And yet, oftentimes, I still feel drawn to do this research so I don't waste time. Or I would say, oh, I don't want to waste a meal. So I want to make sure I'm going somewhere good. 
because even though, like you mentioned, we have more flexibility in our schedule than others, you know, there's still, I, I still have, hey, I have limited time in Florence. I'm going to be here for four days. I want to eat like the 15 best gelatos so, because I love gelato, yeah. right? So yeah. I can't, I, you don't want to have one bad gelato experience that's taken up room in your stomach, right? So, I I, so I'm with you. Like, how do we, how do we do that? Because I, there are, I feel guilty a lot of times. I'm, I'm researching, or I am. I'm on Yelp or TripAdvisor. I'm like, Trap, put your phone down. Like, just go do it. And then sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. What? Yeah. Like, is there a way to that you found that helps you do that other than simply saying, "Hey, man, just like leave your phone at the hotel or whatever, turn it off." Well, I will say two things. Well, first of all, leaving your phone at the hotel just one day of your trip can really be an incredible lesson because I don't nowadays, I mean, it used to really be that even like five or eight years ago, you probably didn't even have data when you were in another country. So it really almost didn't matter. Uh, and, and really was possible to do that. But, so I do recommend people do that just once or just go out in the afternoon without your earphone or something. Like that. But what I, I think what my sort of plan is, uh, is twofold. First of all, I always make a plan. I do research. Well, the thing is, usually I'm writing for the New York Times, and you do have to sort of at least see what else people have written about. Um, you know, on that Naples trip, you know, I kind of had to mention pizza, right? But I was really scared about mentioning pizza because, like, the New York Times travel section has people that live in Italy, and they know more about food than I do. I just like to eat, you know. I don't know what the dough temperature or whatever has to be or uh, – or even if dough has a temperature, I mean, I, I, who knows? But uh, so I make a plan and I make sure I know what's good that's out there. And then basically I just look for ways not to follow it. So okay. Love, uh, I like if, this. All right. If an idea pops up and I've been meaning to go to the whatever, some great museum or, uh, you know, the Louvre or whatever, or, or uh, you know, to see David, whatever. And I see uh, something else catches my attention. Then I, I try to tell myself, resist going to the museum, go down this street, talk to this person. And you know what? I'm not always able to do it because I, I'm just like, eh, I'm going to waste my time. It's going to, but the amazing thing is it seems like whenever I do leave my plans and do something else, I mean like 90% of the time it's worth it. And if 10, and if 10% of the time it's a disaster, well then Nine out of ten ain't bad. In fact, that's almost better than anything else, the odds of anything else in the world. Right. And if it's a disaster, honestly, that then also leads to the flip side of a good material for writing or podcast. Or if you're just someone who's traveling, you don't have to document it. It's still a story, right? Like it might not turn out well or, or like it might not be better, but it's it's an experience that you might not have had otherwise. So we're both in the same boat where we know what we should do, but then sit there and say, hey, sometimes I can. I guess the I guess the moral of that story is not you're even if you're someone who literally wrote the book on, hey, don't let TripAdvisor kill adventure, which is one of your taglines, which I love. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. still then sometimes let TripAdvisor kill your adventure. Right. Just try to do it less and less and less well this is like the reason that you also don't want to learn math from like a nobel prize winner like if the guy knows how to do it do everything he doesn't have to think about it then he what's he going to teach you i'm i'm the i'm a the, sort of a disaster sometimes when I, I travel um i i make a lot of mistakes and i try to be pretty open about them 
Uh, yeah. But the other thing I think would help me actually is the weird, there's something weird about having done this frugal traveler column because I always wanted to do something different. And and before I did it, I was a real Latin America guy. Like I had never ever really traveled in Europe or Asia that much. And so I started going to these crazy weird places in, in Europe and Asia and, and, and it ended up, I didn't go to the normal places. So like for a while I had been to a bunch of parts of, of, of Portugal and never been to Lisbon. I didn't, hadn't even flown through Lisbon. And, uh, and people would ask, oh, you write, you're a travel writer for the New York Times. You know, what should I do in Lisbon? You must love Lisbon. I'm like, I have never been to Lisbon. And you sort of begin to realize that that's okay. You know, oh, I was, I was in Paris. I'd never been to the Louvre. That, I love talking about the Louvre because it's, it's, that's where the Mona Lisa is. And like, the, what could be worse than going to see the Mona Lisa in a room crowded with a thousand people and yet millions and millions of people go a year? Like, it's okay not to go see the Mona Lisa. It's even okay to be a travel writer and not have been to Lisbon. Now, let me just tell you, I felt so guilty about it for a while. I went and finished this book. I spent a month in Lisbon finishing the book because I felt so bad about that. But like, and did you love? Stuff, did you love Lisbon though? Oh yeah, Lisbon is uh, well. It's also overrun with with travelers. So I, the place I stayed in was this gorgeous neighborhood. It's called Principe Real. It's sort of just up the hill from the Bairro Alto, which is where all the sort of the younger like the backpackers stay, and it's that's really fun. And there's a lot of stuff to do there. But my neighborhood was full of Airbnbs. You know, and I was like, eh, it's really kind of nice. But this like being in the museum of a neighborhood and not in the neighborhood because everybody's renting out their apartments. So that brings us to Airbnb, which is another thing I have a love and hate at the same time. You know, I, I, I love the chance to go stay in somebody's really that's somebody's actual house. What a great invention this sort of sharing economy has brought us. And Airbnb was obviously the pioneer. There's other ways you can do it. Uh, but now it's so over, it is so Airbnb is so much more than what it used to be. And I understand they have to grow, they have to make money, but there's so many Airbnb places now that aren't actually real people's houses. And, and I get really disappointed every time I stay in a place where like on the, in the pictures, it looks like somebody really lives there. I stayed in this place in Rio de Janeiro where there was actually in the pictures, a kid playing with toys on the floor in the apartment. And then I get I get in there. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see what this guy's house, this kid's house is like. It's totally just it was a sham. It was a ruse. It was a nice apartment, but it was clearly just set up like a faux real person's apartment. And that kind of drives me nuts. So what I would say with Airbnb, um, it's the ultimate love hate relationship. I say you should boycott Airbnb by using Airbnb the way it used to be. Just insist on making sure these are real people's houses or and the best way to do it is just to stay in someone's a room in somebody's house. But some people don't like to do that. Um, I just love. I'm just a total voyeur, you know. Like if I can get in someone's house and look at look in their in bookshelves and look in their closet, which was already open. Of course, I would never open somebody's of course, closet. Of course, All right? Obviously not. Uh, but um, anyway, so I think I've, that's pretty much it. That's the the pluses the pluses and minuses. I will say one great thing, which is also actually not to think of it a horrible thing. God damn. Um, it's so cheap to travel places these days. We think it might not be, but if you look at what it used to cost to travel around the world half a century ago, it, which is actually the first time you actually could do it. Like nobody really flew around the world unless you were really rich until the 60s and even – but not until like the 80s or 90s did it really become affordable to a huge number of people. And that's a huge gift. Of course, the other side of that is um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and the fact that now everywhere is crowded. You know, the, Ch the Chinese have been traveling, 
you know, God knows how many times more than they used to. And so just that alone is bring is just flooding, you know, major tourist attractions. Yeah. So we're talking, I, I guess when I was reading the book and reading through it, we're, it's almost like we're trying to get back to an old school version of travel or in our minds, old school, which interestingly enough, even only being 35 and traveling for the last eight, 10 years, 10 years ago, as you right. mentioned, was so different. You so didn't different. have smartphones or, or, you know, certainly not with the capabilities that, that you have now. And I, I, I am feeling that guilt or that pull to, hey, can I go back to that? Like, I don't even know what I didn't have then because we didn't have it. So I didn't have Google Maps and I'd get lost and it'd be annoying and I'd have to knock on someone's door. But then it'd be this little old lady and she'd ask us if we want to have tea and all of a sudden we have this experience. Now, oh, I know I'm lost before I even make a turn because I have data in 150 countries with T-Mobile, right? So <laughs> good good and, good and bad. T-Mobile. Oh, I have it too. Oh, God, what a mixed blessing. It, and I think that that's what's funny about reading your book is it is all of it is a mixed blessing. And it sounds so cliche. Oh, in excess, it's not good for you or try to do it. But it is a I'm glad someone wrote about it because it's a it's something I struggle with every time I travel. I want to make sure I have these authentic experiences, but then I feel the pull of you know of using the tools at my disposal. I think one of the points that, that I wanted to make with that, though, is that when you come home, it's a little easier to have some perspective. Like While I'm on that trip, I might be like, oh, man, I use my smartphone a lot. But when I come home, I don't remember that. I remember the four or five instances in a week or two that that really were travel again and that resonated. And, you know, it's that rose colored glasses of when you come home, mm -hmm. you remember that stuff. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I don't want to put too much pressure on people who are there who are like, oh, yeah, I need to have the perfect trip all the time or or this authentic trip all the time because that doesn't happen whether you have a smartphone or not. Right. No, no, no. Right. Right. I mean, uh, it's so it's so hard. I, I think one of the problems with the smartphones is that it's brought us so many well, we talk about smartphones all the time, how much should you use it in your home life, how much you use it abroad. I just think you should use it less when you're traveling than you do when you're at home. And I don't think we are used to that. Like, you're not going to leave it at the hotel room. Let's just face it. It's just, that's just not going to happen. But you do need to use it less than you use it when you're at home. And one example that I give is like, hey, well, I've recently given in to like reading my smartphone when I'm walking down the street. I just can't. I, I know I shouldn't do it. But I live in New York City, man. Everybody is doing it. Like if you, if you, if unless you tr bump into five people a day, you're a, you're not doing it right. But but um, on the other hand, you know, I would. Um, I have this part in the book. It's actually it's actually right at the end of the book, and I, I really regret putting it at the end because uh, I, a lot of people have commented on it. Where I, I try to invent this thing called travel mode, which is like airplane mode in your phone, except it's this fantasy thing where you'd flip on travel mode. And it would reduce all kinds of things you could do on your phone to a certain amount of time per day. Actually, you know, the iPhone now has this thing where it measures how many hours you do spend on certain apps. It's actually just a, like that on steroids. I have things like it wouldn't let you post to Instagram unless the GPS knows you're in your hotel or at your hostel or at your Airbnb or whatever. Like you can take the pictures with your phone, but you cannot post to Instagram. And you cannot look at what other people are posting on Instagram until you're within the GPS uh, area of your hotel, and then you can do what you know. Then do whatever you want. I, I don't. I don't really care. 
that's so that's a that's like a that. fantastic idea and i think uh, a it could go again like everything i think we're talking about here is like mixed blessings right a it could go in a good way where people aren't out and about doing it or b they just sit in their airbnb then and never get out it's like oh, well it's good. yes but uh that's, yes that's, well no know, well that's why the app the app has an answer being there a fake go. app i've sort of looked into whether this was actually possible to do and it seems like it's not quite yet possible uh but uh, it would limit you to a certain amount of there time okay as well so and it has to be yeah in your in your hotel. the other thing is people are like i gotta post this right away and that's something that's left over from from when we're at home. Not that you should post anything right away anyway. Like nobody's even going to notice if you post it 24 hours later. But when you're halfway around the world and you want to post it right away, your friends are all asleep. You know, there's not even a reason to do it. Right. Um, so, you All know. right. So we got it. Seth Kugel's Travel Mode, the new, the newest hot app on the App Store, right? Yeah, um, exactly. With that, we're talking about old school travel. You mentioned maps and, and getting paper maps, which is something I love too, or or having a, a paper guidebook even. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. You know, whatever is one of the things that I like to do when I travel. And one of the, I'm not going to say I do it every time I travel, but one of the things that I, I tend to do. What else do you do that kind of reverts you back to that old school travel? Or that is the same as when you used to travel pre-smartphone, pre-trip advisor? What have you held on to? Um, well, I definitely still look at a map and try to go to places where there are no tourist attractions in them. I, I used to do that. I remember my first trip ever to Dominican Republic. Uh, I just, I just was like, what's this city up there on the upper corner of the country? Uh, is there anything there? And I looked in the guidebook and there was really nothing there. And I went there. Well, now I'll do the same thing. I'll, I'll check TripAdvisor. And if there's very little written about a place, I'm like, yes, that is a place I, I definitely want to go. So that uh, that's one thing. Um, forcing myself to talk to people is another thing. You don't have to, didn't used to have to force yourself to do it because you used to have to just even to get directions anywhere you had to do it. But um, like forcing yourself to talk to 10 people a day or something like that, you could easily look stuff up. You could see where something is. Uh, the, the whole idea, uh, which I totally stole from another travel writer that I do not know who, who it was or I would give them credit, where you just have to like smile and ask a question to anyone you see. And it can and, and that's how to start a conversation with someone instead of you. It can be a question you already know the answer to. Like you've just looked at Google Maps and you see that you're a mile away and you have to take a left and then a right to get somewhere. But yet you see someone interesting on the street and you just say, oh, excuse me, can you tell me uh, how to get to wherever? Um and so continuing to talk to people even when you don't have to is a big one. Do you journal at all? Do you like do you write stuff down because I know one of the things that I've that I'm still holding on to and and will probably hopefully never give up even though I know there's apps out there that I could use if I wanted um is just bringing like a moleskin notebook around and when you, you know when I'm eating at a place that's great all right writing a note in about it and I still do that and yeah I'm not I, I might not be as engaged if I wasn't writing at all, but I feel like that also opens me up to people asking me questions because they'll say stuff like, oh, like, like, why, what are you writing or why are you writing this down? And you say, oh, I run a travel site, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Well, um, uh, absolutely. I don't use moleskin. You're, it looks like you're a very uh, sort of well-heeled traveler. I use these, uh, I'm going to just show, I know people can't see them, but these Rodia notebooks, these are a French brand, which I... Uh, are just amazingly great because you can sort of ch it's kind of a, got a waxy cover and you chisel in the name of the trip into the wax it's also just exactly the size that can fit in your pocket 
So you never need to like put it in your bag or anything. And yeah, well, I take notes uh, on paper as opposed to uh, in a smartphone. I still uh, take pictures with a big camera. Uh, so that's a really important part for me of, of I guess, jur- um, journaling in that way. Uh, I really, uh, but yes, I sit down and I write in my notebook. I don't, if I, first of all, if I take notes, it's sort of, it's sort of counterintuitive, but if I take notes on my phone, I'm so disorganized that I'm going to forget where they are. Like I know you can get Evernote or whatever, and then suddenly everything's on the, on the cloud and it's in your computer and your, your mother has it and all, all at once. But I, I forget stuff there. Like I've gone, I've taken notes in my phone when I sort of maybe left my notebook at the hotel and then I get back and I'm trying to write about it. And I'm like, where did I put those notes? I'm like, were they in my phone? And then maybe they were in my iPad. They weren't in my phone. Anyway, so so yes, writing. And also there is something tactile about writing that is still, you know, it makes you remember things better. It helps you to think. Um, and it's all in one place. I have a whole shelf full of these full of these notebooks from every trip. Nice. All right, I'm going to have to give them um, a, a try then. So Rhodia. All right, yeah. I love the, yeah. the Moleskin, whatever, Kahir, no, whatever I they are. I love Moleskin. Don't get me wrong. Don't but, get me wrong. Hey, I mean, that's Molson's a great. Rhodia, man. That's a French wax cover. I mean, talk about the li- little snooty yeah. there. Nice, nice. I'll be like, oh, these are from Oh, France. well, the funny thing is, it's like Corona. You know, like we used to think Corona. That's a cool Mexican <laughs> beer. And in Mexico, they're like, that's the cheapest beer that we've ever seen. It's so horrible. Like this kind of notebook is like the lowest end French notebook. You're at the, you you're at the French dollar store and you're getting like 50 of them yeah. at once. Yeah. Yeah. Like, a, the, yeah. I think I got these at Office Depot in Paris. I, I believe it's called Depot de Office. <laughs> or, or whatever, and uh, I bought like twenty of them, and they're really cheap. Nice. Really cheap. How has how has your travel style changed in the last eight ten years since you so you started documenting? Let's let's talk. Give a timeline a little bit. Frugal traveler, you became the frugal traveler for New York Times twenty ten, I believe. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Okay, that's and correct. kept that job title until twenty sixteen. How yeah. has your travel style changed? Not just we're talking with smartphones and things like that, but you personally, maybe where you go, how you go, do you rough it more or less? Like what is what has evolved for you? Um, I um, I when I first started doing Frugal Traveler and and before that, um, you know, I I wasn't making that I wasn't making that much money. Actually, you don't make that much money as a freelance writer, even if you're writing for the New York Times. So. So uh, I did uh, always just default to spending as little money as possible. I did change that a little bit when I thought it was getting uh, ridiculous. Like I realized at some point, I think I might have been in Madrid. I remember having this realization that I had trained myself to walk by any restaurant that looked fancy or that even looked in more than cheap, uh, and not even see that it was there. Like I was ignoring the whole layer of travel that involved spending more than like a double digit number of dollars. Like if it was over $10 or certainly if a hotel was over a hundred dollars, I would never, I didn't stay at a, a place that was over a hundred dollars the whole time I was a frugal traveler. And that seems easy in most of the world. I mean, it's simple in most of the world, but there are certain places where, I mean, the other thing is I sort of did stop saying in hostels uh, as a writer because it's too easy. Like you're writing about budget travel. Uh, yeah, go to a hostel. It's cheap. Who didn't know that? Right. So I would always have this mission to go and stay in places that were, you know, guest houses or quirky um, sort of 
weird cooperative spaces or, or whatever. And I sort of learned doing that, that it is sometimes worthwhile to spend a few extra bucks. You do occasionally want to go to the nice restaurant if it's a real, if it's really worthwhile. If you it has good TripAdvisor um, reviews. Yeah. Well, like you don't want to be like what drives me nuts is when people like when I used to travel, I did a semester abroad. I I, I was I traveled in Europe quite a bit. That was way a long time ago. And uh, we used to buy like peanut butter and stuff and and, and bologna or whatever, like at least spend like a 50 cents more and get like the French ham to put on your baguette rather than saving, you know, less than a dollar to get uh uh, and, and and that's of course not true if you really don't have any money left and you need to make it through the last week to do whatever you need to do. But I feel like some people. Uh, I used to play a game where I would spend as little money as possible, and now I try to recognize when it's a game and when it isn't, and I, I try to do it. The other thing I do now, uh, more than I did now that I'm not a frugal traveler anymore, is I love letting other people decide things. Uh, I, for six years, I would take people along my trips and I'd like force them to go here, go there, go there, get up early so we can go to eight different places the same day and whatever, whatever. Now when I travel and it's not for work, I just say, just do whatever you want. Take me with you. So that's one way that I, I've is changed. That, I've become a lot more easygoing. friends and people who are traveling with you or is that people that you're meeting at, at the place or at yeah. the country that you're in? Well, I, I tend to, uh, yeah, I really mean people that I'm traveling with, although certainly if I meet somebody and then they have an idea that I haven't thought of, I will definitely go with them. In fact, I would have done that beforehand. What, I, what I've what i noticed and what I, what I think Frugal Trailer helped me with a lot is uh, whereas before I would love to have interesting things happen and great stories to tell, as Frugal Trailer, I kind of had to make it happen. Like an article, oh my God, who needs any more to read an article in a, in, a, in, a, in a website or a blog or online or in a newspaper or whatever? Who needs to know the facts about anything anymore? We can just look in whatever app we want to look in or map or app or guidebook and we can find all the facts we need to find. You need stories. And so I was kind of forced to go out and, and talk to people and make things happen and do weird stuff. And it kind of, I lost a little bit of the shame that I used to have in, in like hinting that I would really like to, I mean, the, the thing that I risked was just so embarrassing. I was biking in Kentucky. This story is in, is in the book and I was in the Appalachian, uh, Appalachian area of Kentucky. And, and, uh, I was sort of doing this on purpose because I, I'm, I live in the city uh, Appalachia has this kind of any place that has a reputation that people make fun of, you just know it's not going to be like that. Right. <laughs> but the only way to really convince, you know, it's sort of mentally, but the only way to really know is to go. Right. And especially now in the United States, political division and whatever, you just know that you're not, you don't fully, you know, that people are not the way you sort of are, have been taught to think they are. So I went to Appalachia and I'm like, oh man, I would, I got to meet some people here. So I, I did a bike trip. And uh, I'm doing about 30 miles a day. And at the end of one day, I realized I was not going to make it to the motel that I had planned to, to make it to. And then I just, you know, I was like, okay, you got to do it. So I get off the road. I go to a gas station. I start talking to people. There. I'm like, I will not leave this gas station without a place to sleep tonight. And I never used to be able to do that, man. I think I would have just like called a whatever they, you know, I would have hitched a ride or something to the, to the, to the motel or something. So, uh, yeah, so I ended up. 
talking to the folks and then saying, hey, how am I going to get to this motel before dark? They're like, you'll never make it. And uh, and then <laughs> you're I, like, yeah, what? you're right. I won't make it. I guess I'll just sleep. Is it OK to sleep outside without a tent? Do you guys have any animals around here? Knowing so well, there's like coyotes all over the place. Uh, yeah. And so then I get invited over. And then, of course, I have a great time with this family. Um, a very a well-educated family, complete non-stereotype, um, uh, except for the fact that we went shooting in the in the holler. Which is, you know, in the in the valley, sort of behind their property, we shot like glass bottles uh, with their, you know, weapon uh, pistols, which I'd actually done before. I'm also not the typical New Yorker. I do know how to, I do know how to shoot a gun, so uh, we kind of had a good bonding experience there. So yeah, that's the sort of thing that I am I'm now all in on, like creating, making the stories happen. What What do you think? like you could tell people other and again other than like hey you just have to do it over and over again because that is going to help you get out of your comfort zone but what would you tell people because i get asked this a lot as well how do i have these authentic experiences or or you know usually i guess the question is phrased how do i meet people when i'm out traveling like how do i meet local actual locals trav how did you have that experience in montenegro where you were drinking rocky with this dude who didn't speak english and you almost fell down the hill like how does that happen and I don't have a really good answer other than like you got to make it happen, but can you solidify it a little better yeah. than I can? Well, I can give uh, you one what I find to be the best possible strategy, which is to go to places where there's not as many travelers and also at the same time where people are more hospitable. And I, I don't mean like hospitable like, a, like it's something that, you know, good versus evil. Like cultures where people are just prone to hospitality. So if you go to a place where people are, uh, where you're not going to run into too many travelers and people are hospitable, you, you're just going to end up having a much easier time talking to people. I was just thinking about the at a time I was in Ecuador and I had two days left on my trip and I kind of didn't really have any plans. And I just ended up looking at a map and at Google Maps, to Google Maps is a nice way to explore when you're in your, in your, you know, I think I was staying in a, a guest house. And I look and I find this little town that it looks like there's no roads there at all. It looks like it's in the middle of the mountains. There's no roads there. And I said, what is this town? It had a very strange name. It was called Kinheo, like Q-U-I-N-G-E-O. And I just Googled it. Google, another good tool when used for good instead of evil uh, when for in, travelers. When in travel mode. Yeah, well, you know, I was in my, I was not Googling on the side of the street or anything. Sure. And then I, I found this old story, and I, I, you know, I've been in Latin America a lot. I, I can read Spanish, but you could use Google Translate if you couldn't. And the story about how this town was very, this very quirky town was dead during the week because everyone went into Cuenca, which is this was the city nearby. And, uh, and then on the weekend it came alive and there was like a fair and there was a soccer tournament and all this kind of stuff. And I, I'm like, what day of the week is it? And it was Friday. So I'm like, Oh, you know, I didn't, I just didn't even realize what day of the week was. So I, so I went there and you know, there's nothing that'll get people talking to you more than when you're someone from far away and they have never seen a traveler there before ever. 
And this is in a very mainstream tourism country. You know, Ecuador is full with American retirees. Yep. Let, I, you yeah, know, you said Cuenca. Even. That's like retiree capital of, of the yeah. world, possibly, right? Or American yeah. retiree yeah. capital I mean, of the world. It's beautiful and great, and, and they're very used to travelers. But this was an hour away on the bus. and Not even, a, not even like an inner city bus. It was an hour away on like the local bus. And it was a gorgeous city. It's the epilogue of the book. It's the, it's the story I end the book with because I think it just sort of proves everything. Uh, so, you know, I went there and it's gorgeous. It could easily be a tourist city. It could easily be. The center square is picturesque. Uh, there's probably only like a few hundred people living there. Uh, but they have this market in the, in the, on a Sunday and this massive soccer tournament. And, um, and I just remember going over. The guy was announcing the soccer tournament. He was doing the play-by-play, and there's like nobody watching, but he's still doing the play-by-play. And the market's kind of going on around him. So I went over and I, I introduced myself. I'm like, "Well, I just wanted to meet you." He's like, "Where are you from?" I'm from, I'm from New York. So he starts just talking in, about me into the loudspeaker. He's like, "Seth Kugel has come all the way from New York uh, to try our our delicious local specialties." Uh, blah 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 blah, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding! This is hilarious. I am now the subject of the play-by-play announcer in this little town. So the point is, like, that's an extreme version, right? Go to a place where you can't find it in any guidebook, um, and people will just be nice to you. And I ended up drinking Zumir, which is this um, uh, sugar cane, like like, like Colombian aguardiente. It kind of has like an anise kind of a flavor, and I was just drinking it with these folks, and they turn out to be um, teachers in Cuenca who are from this town. So they come every weekend and hang out in this town. And we talked about like, um, you know, what it was like being a teacher in Ecuador and and drank. And that's uh, to me, I mean, that's a, that's a better, that's exactly the kind of experience that I'm looking for. People will then say, well, I don't speak Spanish, blah, 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 blah. But you know, as English speakers, there's often going to be people who speak English everywhere. We don't realize how lucky we are. I work a lot with Brazil and in Brazil, you know, not everyone speaks English, but they still want to travel. Then it becomes a little bit harder. It becomes a little bit hard to go off the beaten trail if you're not fluent in English and you're in Korea. Because in Korea, you'll always find someone. You'll always find someone who speaks English. But um, and so anyway, so you use English. The other thing is Google Translate is now incredible. I had these amazing conversations in this. Well, here's another thing. On the Yangtze River in China, I took these these ferries up the river, right? And a lot of people take these tourist boats. Uh I took these ferries. I shared a, a bedroom with like a Chinese family. You know, they don't tell you you're going to share a room with a six people with three beds or whatever. You share a room with them. And I'm using Google Translate. We, you know, we had a conversation. I'm not going to say we were solving the world's problems or or solving like a physics uh, exercises or anything like that. But we were having this sort of basic conversation. And, and, that, and that was great. So, um, yeah, I don't even remember what the question was, but yeah, I hope I answered it. You, yeah, it was just this idea that how do you get to authentic travel? And, and that was interesting that you brought up going to places where it's easier. Other th- and, and you mentioned Ecuador, which I think is interesting because a lot of times people want a checklist of like what countries are easier. And you, you kind of painted the picture there that within every place that you are, there's probably within an hour of that place somewhere where you could have authentic travel, right? Well. And, exactly. And that's but do you have specific areas that you have found, like whether it be regions of the world, whether it be countries, whether it be regions of a country that you've said, yeah, you know, like authentic travels. I, it, I, I don't even really have to try here because 
A, it's hospitable. B, it's not overrun with tourists. Well, I think certainly uh, a lot of places sort of in the Middle East uh, are, I mean, there's certain places you can't travel. You can't even go to Saudi Arabia without a special visa. But like uh, Middle East and environs, okay, people, there, there is just sort of this ingrained hospitality there. I remember reading about a, a, a reporter who ended up with a, some sort of kidney problem or something. And because he had been reporting in the Middle East and Africa for too long. And he, they finally realized he was being offered tea like 40 times a day. And so he would have like 40 cups of tea a day. And it was causing literally they were they were hospitalized. They were being hospitable to death. He was you know, he was he he actually had a serious problem. So I think that part of the world is very is very hospitable. Uh, Turkey is just an incredibly hospitable place. Um, you know, Scandinavia isn't, but that doesn't mean it can't be. I also don't want to discourage people from going. I, I was in, you know, I was, I, when you go to Scandinavia, I was in Stockholm. I met a lovely, per, you know, person. She was, a, was a woman, I must admit. And so perhaps, you know, she was taken in by my, you know, charms or whatever, but she was like, yeah, when I got off of work, we'll take a walk. We'll take a walk into her. Nothing was not, nothing romantic happened. Nothing. We just took a walk around Stockholm and she showed me some stuff. You know, it can, it can happen, but you really do need to talk, talk and talk to people and not be worried when people don't have the time to talk to you, man. If, I mean, I live in New York. If, if you catch me on a bad day walking down the street here and you, and you want to chat with me, I'm just going to ignore you or just say, oh, sorry, I got to run. But, you know, if you catch me on a good day, I, I might be that guy. Who, who talks to you for a while and, and like tells you where you should go next or, 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 or whatever. So, um, you know, it's a combination of, of finding those places. The other thing I do sort of tell people is all other things being equal, go to a place that speaks, you speak the language, or at least you get along in the language. So, uh, the classic example would be like, we're getting towards winter. Uh, people are going to want to, I mean, at least in the Northeast, people all want to go to the Caribbean, right? Um, I don't know where people go from the West Coast. They go to Hawaii. I have no idea. But but if they go or Mexico. So when I say when you're choosing your island in the Caribbean, unless you really care, choose an English speaking country. Go to Barbados or go to Trinidad or go to Jamaica over going to Martinique or the Dominican Republic or whatever. Or if you spoke Spanish, you've took high school Spanish and get along, then go to the Dominican Republic. That's really fun. That's the other thing. When you do speak a foreign language, um, that opens up so much to you. And so I guess uh, for the people who are, you know, you're a, you're a hip travel podcast. You, most people are probably pretty young listening to this. Like I started learning Portuguese when I was 34. So one year younger than you. I'm now completely fluent in Portuguese. I go to Brazil. I, I can go anywhere. And, um, you know, learning a language when you're in your 20s or teens and 20s and 30s, uh, you know, when you still maybe still have the time to do it and the energy to do it, that's an incredible, incredible gift. I have a few friends that speak Arabic. Now they don't speak fluent Arabic, but they speak enough to have a, like a, a five minute conversation. Boy, does that make a difference when they go to uh, Lebanon or something like that? It's just incredible. It's just incredible. So yeah, language, a uh, place of destination, and then just talking, 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 talking. Eventually you're going to find somebody who wants to talk to you. They might be weird. They probably are weird. <laughs> they probably uh, they probably are, and that probably leads to a good adventure. That's what yeah, you're not you're exactly. not picking your best friend for life. Sometimes when you're out looking for an adventure for a couple hours when you're traveling, right? Um, right. What, exactly. What about some of the the places? Because you you hit on a few. What are some of the places or experiences that you've had that have really been your been your favorite? Are there a few that you can pick out that you're like, yeah, 
I just love this place or, or this region. I like places that surprise me. Like I, when I go to a place, I'm like, I can't believe there's a place like this. And uh, I have to mention my uh, this place in, in Brazil called the Lençóis Maranhenses. It's not even that easy, it's not even that easy to, to write down. Uh, it is a place where uh, it's on the coast of northeast Brazil, and it's like a desert filled with lakes. And I don't know if you can imagine that. I would suggest anybody who is listening to this right now, Google image, L-E-N-C-O-I-S space M-A-R-A-N-H-E-N-S-E-S. Very strange phrase. But you Google image that and you tell me that you put it on Instagram or whatever. Tell me you don't want to go there. It's like a desert. You know how when you're allegedly, if you're in a cartoon, you're in the desert and you you like you have a, there's a mirage, right? You see water in front of you. Well, this is a place where like the mirages are real because there's this rainfall for half the year and then half the year there isn't. And these you can just like walk through the desert and every couple hundred yards dive in a lake. And Perfect. it's so amazing. And it's the problem is it's a little bit hard to get to. It's a little bit hard to get to. It's not uh, just in time. You have to take a couple planes and you have to take a bus. Um, so that to me is a super, super special place. Um, I had a great time in – uh, the part of Turkey where they make pistachios because I love pistachios. Like if there's a place where like gelato, like I just think if you go to a place that specializes in or grows a certain food, like baklava made of pistachios, I probably it's you really just need an excuse, right? Like I could eat right. baklava in New York every day. I walk by a Middle Eastern place every day, but there's no way to justify having baklava every single meal in New York. But if you're in Gaziantep, Turkey. And that's all they produce everywhere around you is pistachios. And go for it, man. Nice. Um, let's see. What other really amazing places? Um, well, I I just love overall Indonesia because it's a million countries in one. Like uh, I realized there's not that many places in the world where I realized when I was going that it was going to be Ramadan. Uh, and it's a tough, it's tough to travel during Ramadan in the Muslim world because there's not much going on during the day. People don't really eat. They don't really, they don't eat during the day. So they don't have that much energy. So I was like, ah, what, well, whatever. I'm in Indonesia. I'm going to go to the Christian places. I'm going to go to the Hindi places. I'm going to, you know, and, uh, it's just so varied and so amazing that that's just one country and you can just fly between the islands for really cheap. And, um, you know, Bali, people talk about Bali as like some sort of a spiritual place. They also talk, you know, if you're Australian, you think of it as a place where like you go get drunk on the beach right. or whatever. It's, it's the Cancun of Australia. Exactly. But if you get out, of, if you do get out of the, of the city or get out of that southern part of, of Bali, uh, and you also avoid like the Ubud, which is cool, man. It's cool. It's sort of the eat, pray, love destination and, and it's spiritual and blah, 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 blah. But if you get out a little bit beyond that, boy, what a cool place where every neighborhood has its own temple and um, and people and this all and the food is great and there's all kinds of markets. So I guess that's, that's, those are a few examples. And we'll link them up in the show notes if you didn't get the place in Brazil that he was talking about. Because I'm going to go Google Images right after we're done here. Yes, we'll link all that better. up in the show notes. I will. I will. A desert where I can jump in lakes sounds perfect. Cause I love I love swimming. So it's like, hey, I want to be in the desert, but there's no water around here. Wait a second. Yes, there is. Um, yes, there is. Have you been any places that have underwhelmed you a bit? Oh boy. Yeah. Let me think. What would be the answer to that? Eesh. Um, 
Well, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to be controversial and I'm going to say that Ecuador in some ways also underwhelmed me. And because I don't think the food was very interesting. I'd say the food of Ecuador underwhelmed. But here's a funny thing. Like everywhere you go, people are like, oh, the food is so great there. Yes. But the food I, is not really so great everywhere you go. It isn't. It isn't. And that that kind of that also gets to the point that if you say that about everywhere, then where is special, right? I also do not enjoy that because I'm like, if I tell you the food's great, I want you to, to honestly believe that I think the food is great, which is why I ask this question about underwhelming, because then when you say, Hey, I love this place. People can take it and say, all right, he's not just telling, talking about every place. All right. So I'm with you. I, I feel that. All right. So Ecuador, food, yeah. eh. Yeah. Um, I also don't like places that are really, they're dirtier than you think they're going to be. I'm not going to mention any place in particular, but a lot of places you'll, you'll go to places and you'll be like, this national park is full of trash, you know, and that's just disappointing. Unfortunately, that's a good lesson to, to learn, right? Places are not the way they look in pictures. There's huge problems with with trash and, and, and uh, waste disposal all over the place. So... Uh, yeah, I guess that's okay. that's something as well. Yeah, you're, and obviously you were the frugal traveler. You're six years, right? Uh, you got to yeah. hold that mantle inside her. So we'd be remiss if we didn't prick your brain a little bit on this point. What are sure. some of your favorite tips for traveling more and spending less? You, you mentioned a little bit, and we've kind of touched on some throughout here, but w- what were things that you always did where you're like, I'm cutting costs here because it's just I'm either going to have a better experience and pay less or a similar experience? Well, I mean, you can you can cut costs in any category, right? So I always like to tell people what what can you what would you be most willing to cut costs in? Uh, and so transportation is is one that I think is really good. Uh, maybe it goes without saying for your listeners that public transportation is a is something you should do. But now in the age of Uber, it's actually not that it's not you don't save quite as much money taking True. the bus as you used to, and yet it's still really worthwhile to take the bus to take the subway. Um, sometimes I still do the thing where I just get off in random subway stops and, and see what's there. Can't do that every place in the world. You got to make sure you're in a place that's relatively safe. Um, so that's one thing. And, and, um, obviously if you basically overall, if you set a lower budget, you do sort of, and I know you believe, believe this, uh, you do end up having better experiences. You just get, the more you spend, the more you're isolated from, from the, the actual place you're uh, visiting, but here's just like a silly tip that I kind of didn't believe when I when I first saw it. Like on the sites, on the OTAs, on Kayak, on Expedia, whatever. If you book the hotel and the plane as a package, like I was like package. I don't do package travel. That's just not my thing. You actually save money. You know, uh, you of course you you have to already you you know if you have a friend who's staying you could stay with. It's not worth it. But if you're going to a place and you need a hotel and you need a plane ticket. You definitely should buy them together because it's this whole trick where the airlines are not allowed to post the, the individual sites are not allowed to post rates that are cheaper. So kayak can't give you a discount on an American Airlines flight. That's p- price parity. It's all the contracts they sign. They're just not allowed to do it. But if they can combine a hotel room and a plane and give you a total price for the two and not tell you how much is the price of one and how much is the price of the other, then you end up getting a discount. But I think absolute thing that surprises the most people is saving on plane fare by using consolidators, consolidators being actual travel agents 
who have prices that do not appear online that are actually cheaper than booking online. And uh, I just uh, I was helping a friend plan a trip to Brazil. And they were going over the holidays, and it's really expensive. Everyone loves to go down to Brazil for New Year's. They have a great New Year's celebration. And I, and they, and I said, well, have you tried booking through uh, BACC Travel, which is just one of the places that specialize in travel to Brazil? And they said, no, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, you call them, literally, on the phone, call them, and see uh, what they have available. And she didn't really believe me, and but she did it. And she got right back in touch with me and said, I just got a ticket for $400 less than I would have, than it was available online. And it's not, you can't do that everywhere. You can't do that for domestic flights in the U.S. Uh, usually it's places that have large immigrant communities in the U.S. So there's a regular group of people traveling from the U.S. to Croatia, to Russia, to China, to, um, to Brazil, to Mexico, to Dominican Republic to El Salvador. And often these agencies will just sort of cut these deals with airlines and say, hey, uh, we guarantee you X thousand number of tickets a year, but you have to give us a better price. And they do. And it's real. And sometimes you find them online. So if you Google consolidators, you'll find some of these places like you'll find BACC travel, but you don't get the price online unless you register for them. And their site is terrible. <laughs> right. It's horrible. It's like 1997. Uh, but it works. So um, that's that's just a, that's just a great tip. So where. OK, because now I've learned three things in this show. I've learned the milk. All right. Um, the room for milk. I've learned. Yeah. I did not know actually hotels and, and airlines were cheaper when you book through like an OTA like Orbitz because I've never you know, same as you. I'm like, no, I. It doesn't. I, that's get, not the kind of thing we would do. Yeah, I'll get a flight and I'll get a hotel, or I'll, I probably won't even get a hotel. I'll get an Airbnb or whatever. I'll do some other accommodation. Didn't know it was cheaper. And consolidators, I've I've heard of, but never never used and didn't have never thought to use them really. Where do people like? What should they do? Because you just gave one for Brazil, but let's say you you mentioned Croatia. Let's say for example, hey, I want to go to Croatia. How would I even begin to find a Croatian consolidator? Would it just be right. that in Google or what? Well, I did a story on this for the Times. It, it's still very valid. It's probably five years old. But I think if you Googled me and consolidators – actually, it's in the book too. I, uh, but when I, I'm remembering when I did this story. I was like, OK, let me think what immigrant groups live in New York. And I was just kind of Googling around. And, and, and Croatian – there's a Croatian community in New York. And so I Googled Croatia Travel Agency – uh, Astoria, which I just happen to know is the neighborhood where they, you don't even need to do a story. I've tried this since then. Uh, and uh, agencies pops up, you know, Croatia travel. I called them and I just made something up. I was like, I want to go to Zagreb, uh, you know, from November 12th to November 18th. What's the cheapest price? And before I did it though, I, I searched online. So I knew the baseline. I am not kidding. It was less than 50% of the price. So how do you find it? Well, I mean, if you do live in a big city with immigrants from that place, then it's as simple as finding the travel agency in the neighborhood. And you don't have to go there. You can call them. But it, you don't even have to. You can live in North Dakota, and they'll still get you a flight from to Brazil because you won't, you'll won't. have to get from North Dakota to Chicago or whatever. But the, the BACC travel in New York that does the Brazil flights, uh, they'll – you know, 
they'll book you from Chicago to Brazil. They, they don't care. They don't care if it's New York to Brazil or Chicago. So yeah, I would say do that. The Russian, it just generally tends to be that they're not going to exist for places like France. There's not a huge French immigrant population that's always looking for the cheapest flight home. Um, so it's just be a clever Googler. You can include Consolidator in the Google if you want. Uh, that sometimes will work. Um, and the thing is, um, I'd call people, call them on the phone because they don't charge you extra. Maybe they'll charge you 20 bucks extra on the flight that's $300, $300 cheaper. But um, call them and talk to them. They'll have an accent. They're probably more used to speaking in Serbo-Croatian than in English, but they live here. They speak English. And uh, and it's, it's, it's just kind of a miracle. It's a miracle. I, I can't believe it exists. I cannot wait to try this out. I'm booking a I'm. Not that I need, like you said, not that I need an excuse to travel, but hey, in the name of research, Seth, I have to use a consolidator so I can report back to everyone what the experience was like. So there you go. Got to book a trip. Um, all right. I love that. And we guys will link in the show notes the the article that you wrote too for the New York Times. So that'll be in there so people can find awesome. that pretty awesome. easily. Last question I have for you. What do you consider one of your biggest travel mishaps? Because you, we've touched on, a, you've done a lot of travel, man. You've done a lot of cool, crazy, adventurous travel. What is something that sticks out in your mind? It's just like, I can't believe I did this or I can't believe this happened to me. Oh, God. Well, I mean, I'm think i thinking of two things and weirdly enough, they both happened in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, I, I never had anything super, super horrible happen, but it is true that I often go arrive to a place without a place to stay. And I just always believe that in the era of, uh, you know, uh, computers and actually this happened before this, I was using a smartphone everywhere, but I just figure you can always just stop and go online and hook up to Wi-Fi and find a place to stay or go on one of the, now it's even easier going to apps. but I was in Puerto Rico and I was driving a loop around the Island. Uh, and I, it was just getting towards nightfall and I couldn't find a place and I kept looking and I kept looking and I realized there was a big surf competition in town and there was literally no place to stay. You know, so I just slept in the car. I just slept in the car in a, in a grocery store parking lot. Uh, it's not a huge disaster, but I did feel like it's a little embarrassing that I have to write about this in the New York Times, that, like I'm a professional travel writer. Um, the other thing in Puerto Rico, which is actually was a little bit – luckily it worked out okay, is I went into – I sort of met a guy who's like, hey, let's go down into this canyon. And I was like, eh, all right, let's just go into the canyon. It was like a teenager. Went down into the canyon and – it was really tough getting getting back up. Uh, it, you know, I got all scraped up and everything. But then when I got out and looked it up, it was like, "Do not go in this canyon. Flash floods will kill you." You know, all the time. So again, they both turned out okay. But it just is a good reminder that like you can't just do anything that comes up. You do have to take basic safety precautions. Um, but now that I think about it, neither of those were such huge disasters. Yeah, um, but they're just least. they're just those stories that stick out, right? It's like, yeah, this could have turned out bad. I love that you were sleeping in your car. Better than not having a place to sleep when you were in Kentucky, though, right? I mean, this time you had a car, not just a bike, man. So you had upgraded yeah, at that true. point. <laughs> well, it's the funny thing is the Kentucky one was probably stupider, but it all it all worked out in the end. Right. Uh, and but I think it's important to remember like just cuz something worked out in the end doesn't mean you made the right decision. Like things do happen to you. It, it is possible to, you know, there's a certain number of travelers who are seriously injured every year and and I do have a, there's a whole story there's a whole chapter in the in the book about risk and taking precautions that even an adventurous traveler 
should take, like getting evacuation insurance. So they'll fly you out of there if you really are badly injured and, and there's no uh, ho- hospitals around that can take care of you. So. Yeah. What do you, speaking of that, what do you have coming up in the pipeline? Obviously, you've got the book. The book is out as of October 2018. So, so you know, a brand new book out, launched. What else do you have coming up in the pipeline that people should be aware of? Either either traveling, like you personally, or professionally? Well, um, I am looking for my, I'm going to do a lot of traveling in the Amazon in Brazil because I am trying to come up with a way to write about, uh, I guess to be a more serious travel writer, to be a travel writer that doesn't just eat funny food. And I, I, I'm, I'm looking for a way to turn travel writing into more of a mission. And right now there's a new um, government that's been elected in Brazil. And they're very sort of seemingly anyway, anti-environment, anti-rainforest development kind of thing. So I'm looking for a way. I'm going to go to the Amazon for a couple of weeks in January uh, and sort of sift around down there for a serious way to write about environmental issues that also involves travel. So that's that's my project right now. Awesome. So where can people then find the book? What's the best way for them to get Rediscovering Travel? You can, well, it should be everywhere now. Uh, it, it has launched. Uh, but if you go to globallycurious.travel, all the links to buy the book are, are there. That's the page on my website that has it, globallycurious.travel travel that's or get it on amazon or get it in barnes and noble or get or especially get it in your local bookstore of course i'd rather have you do that there you go oh you know what oh yeah there's an audiobook there's an audiobook okay some person sat in a studio and recorded my 300 pages of of me did they did they ever ask so they didn't ask you to do it ever right or did you even know it was happening i only knew it was happening because i saw it available on amazon and then the guy who did it tweeted he was doing it and ta- and he, he tagged me so i i uh so i actually i actually talked to him i'm like you're gonna be me and he's talking he has this great voice he's talking like this I'm like oh yeah you sound you sound great you can do the book <laughs> no they didn't ask me to do it um okay. so. interesting so you can listen to it you can read it go grab it seth thanks so much for joining me today for uh really helping being one of the voices that that really opened up the budget travel world to the masses over the last decade. That's certainly been a big movement. As you mentioned, it's only gotten cheaper, which double-edged sword, but but I think in the, on the positive side, so many people have been able to say, yeah, I don't make a ton of money. I still want to travel. You've been someone who's shown that it's possible to a bunch of countries, numerous ways. So thank you for that. Love it. And thank you for now kind of fighting the good fight against smartphones and technology and all that taking over travel and just at least reminding us, hey, put it away a little bit. Try to go back to this old school travel in some way. You won't be perfect, but but at least give it a shot because you're going to have these authentic experiences. So thank you for that, man. Remind people one more time, how can they like how what's the best way for them to find everything you're writing as a freelancer, the yep. book, everything you're doing? Well, all my stuff is on sethkugel.com, S-E-T-H-K-U-G-E-L.com. And if you click on book, it has all the links to the book and, and all that. So that's probably the best way to do it. Yeah, and we didn't even – we didn't mention Seth has a two YouTube channels. One, oh one in Portuguese, right? One a Brazilian yeah. YouTube channel in Portuguese. Yeah. And then you also have an English-speaking YouTube channel. Yeah, th- that one's relatively new. I do talk a lot. So if you want a little taste of the book more than you've gotten here – this, uh, I have a YouTube channel that kind of accompanies the book. It's called Globally Curious. I'm going to come out with a few new videos in the next few days, including a video on when it's ethical to hook up on the road. Oh, How do you go. like that? All right. Then talk I'm about it. I'm not so sure I'm right. I'm not so <laughs> sure I'm right about it. I, I have much less experience than I would like. So there is that. 
Uh, and then Amigo Gringo is the name of the of the. It's a crazy YouTube channel, and you don't have to speak Portuguese. I'd say ninety percent of the videos on there have uh, subtitles. You have to click the little CC button, and it's actually a great way to learn about stuff to do in New York. I originally did it to teach Brazilians how to travel uh, in New York and have a genuine experience, but it really does go for um, you know for everyone else as well. That's awesome. We will link everything up in the show notes, guys. Oh, awesome! Ch- check it out. Check it out. Yeah, we'll have to have Seth come back on again to give. Like I told you, if you read his about page, we're only like we're only halfway through his about page at this point, guys. Got a lot of cool stuff going on. So check that out. We'll link in the show notes. You can get all the show notes, of course, as always, at extrapackofpeanuts.com slash shows. So this episode's there. Everything we talked about be linked up right there. Don't forget too, if you're looking for cheap flights, we've got our new app out, Jetto. So you can get that at letsjetto.com or on any of the app stores, totally free to download. Seth, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was so much fun to chat with you after following your you're writing for the last, whatever it is, 10 years. It was cool to finally get to connect. So thank you. Travis, this was awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today for your continued support. That makes us number one rated travel podcast. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris The world's largest exporter of Brazil nuts is Brazil's neighbor to the west, Bolivia, followed closely by its other neighbor to the west, Peru, and then, surprisingly, Cote d'Ivoire and the Gambia. How does that happen?